You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. How many nations has this book outlasted? How many kingdoms has it seen toppled? How many rulers has it deposed? How many cataclysms has it weathered? How many wars has it given peace through? The prophet Jeremiah was given a task and a job, and part of that job was as the herald of the word of the Lord to uproot and plant, to tear down and build up. This sermon is titled Christians in Exile because I want us to think and live as those who are seeing everything around us torn down. And I want us to be planted with roots that run deep. If you would open in your Bible to Jeremiah chapter 29, we're going to be in verses 4 to 7 today. Let's read the word of God together, starting in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning as we look at your words during the cataclysm that these people faced, being uprooted from their nation, moved across a desert, and put in a foreign city. You gave specific rules, you gave specific commands. And for that season, those people flourished as you gave them the ability to. We look at our own lives, our own nation, and we pray for wisdom from this passage. How can we please you in this, our exile? How can we serve you in this city that we know not? We pray for wisdom from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So the context to this passage is pretty interesting. You've got to 
remember your biblical timeline here, and Judah had been invaded, and about 3,000 people had been deported to Babylon. This is before the massive invasion later on in 586 B.C., but this is the first exile. Y'all know that Daniel and his friends preceded the majority of the, of the rest of Jerusalem into exile. And if you turn back just a few chapters, in chapter 24, you will see that God has been dealing with these people in Babylon. In fact, he distinguishes them from the people of Judah that remain in Jerusalem. And he calls the people that are in Babylon good figs. And he calls the people in Judah bad figs. So you've got the good figs. And the rotten figs that nobody wants to eat. And God promises to work good on the good figs and work bad on the rotten figs. And in the middle of this, in chapter 25, God promises that there are going to be 70 years of captivity for the exiles living in Babylon. 70 years spelled out clearly. But in the middle of this, during the prophet Jeremiah's ministry, the people who remained in Judah did not want to hear what God was communicating through him. So they stirred up some false prophets and a man named Hananiah spoke. And he actually, in, verse, in chapter 26 um, and 27, says that this will not be the case. So he gives a false message and sends a letter to the Israelites in Babylon and says, no, in chapter 28, you won't be there for 70 years, but only two years. And then God is going to rescue you and take out King Nebuchadnezzar. And because the people of God are confused, and remember, the people in Babylon are called good figs, God sends them his word through a letter that the prophet Jeremiah writes. And that's the letter that we looked at this morning. This passage corrects the false prophecy of Hananiah and gives the people of God in Babylon their marching orders for the next 70 years. Now, we read this, and it doesn't seem as difficult to us to read about this because of where we are in redemptive history But you could imagine that to the people of Israel who had grown up for so long in God's land, in the promised land, under the temple and under the teachings of the priests, that this was a different type of message. Now, we'll take a step back and we're going to divide it into four pieces and talk about the four different commands. But it's important that we start the right way. And if you look in verse 4. God starts it by reminding the people of Judah who put them in exile. If you uh, like to take notes on your note sheet, you can look and see that the people of God were in exile, but God was in control. The people of God were in exile, but God was in control. Look in verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Who sent them into exile? God did. 
Not Nebuchadnezzar, not the Babylonian armies, but the Lord. It's important to note also this translation, the Lord of hosts, is sometimes translated as the God of armies, the Lord of armies. It were God, there were God's armies involved in that exile, not just the Babylonian armies. God was the king who directed human events, not Nebuchadnezzar. The people of God might have been in exile, but God was still in control. And so he reminds them of that before he gives them these four commands. Now let's walk uh, through this really quick. Look in verse 5. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. We take a step back, and that seems very, very normal to us. That just seems like good, solid advice. But could you imagine being in a place where there's no temple to your God? How do you even worship him? There's no testimony of your people being there, so how do you even convey an ethnic or national origin? And you don't even know what building to go to. There's, you don't know where the justice of the peace is. And God gives them a command to carry on their lives. You see, this place was not their permanent home. They were not in their permanent home. It was a strange land. It was not their country. It was not their people. It was not their king. But they were being led astray by false prophets. They were being led astray by this Hananiah. And they were being led astray to do what God had commanded them not to do. If they would have followed his advice, they wouldn't have done anything for two years except wait for this event that would never have happened. So the purpose of Jeremiah's letter, the purpose of all of this, reminds them of the word of the Lord. It reminds them of that which they should be doing as the people of God. Jeremiah's letter finds them at a point where they are disconnected from God's plan, it would seem. And he reminds them that the way forward is generational discipleship. Generational discipleship. Way back in Deuteronomy 6, the people of God had been commanded to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, strength, They had been told, though, to do something very specific with that love. They were to pass it down to the next generation. They were to pass it down to their children and their children's children and always remind them of what the Lord had done for them as a people. They were to talk about it when they went to sleep. They were to talk about it when they woke up. They were to talk about it when they walked along the road or when they sat down for dinner They were to teach the next generation what the Lord had done for them, who they were as a people in relation to him. And Jeremiah reminds them that this process has not stopped 
just because the people of God are not in their homeland. Now, there are four phases to this plan that he tells them. We're going to walk through them one at a time. Verse 5, build houses and live in them. Now, what God is commanding the people here is to build self-sufficient lives. Build self-sufficient lives. It's weird for us to think about this because we live in such a disposable society. You go down to the store and buy your fruit and it's not grown anywhere near here. But at that time when you built a house and you had gardens that you planted, like the text commands, it wasn't an instant thing where within 30 or 40 days you were self-sufficient. Some of the fruit trees that you plant take five to seven years to start producing enough fruit to support a family. Now we're in the south here in pecan or pecan, however you say it, trees, they take 15 to 20 years of some species to produce fruit. And so it takes long-term strategic thinking to be completely fed by your own garden, by your own land. But the people of God were starting to realize they had to put down roots. God commanded them, be self-sufficient, put down roots, live in the land to which I sent you. Now, second, part of that self-sufficiency is God commanded them to build strong families. Once again, verse 6, take wives and have sons and daughters. Build strong families. You're not going to be here for just two years. You're going to be here for 70. So you better do what you were doing back in the land. Build strong families. But not just strong families. God commands them to build fruitful families. Look at the text as it continues in verse 6. And it says, take wives for your sons. And give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now the number of people taken in this part of the exile were only 3,000 and some odd people. There were not a lot of people there. But God reminds them, be fruitful, multiply, continue what you are doing in the land. Build self-sufficient, fruitful families. And last... He tells them to impact the surrounding culture in a positive way. Look at verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now this is very strange for Jewish people to hear. Pray for those people who just conquered you. It's very much akin to the command of Jesus in the Gospels to pray for your enemies. But Jeremiah, the word of the Lord says through him, pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So very simple. Four main points. But there is a promise at the end of this that we have to remember. And look with me in verse 10. We're going to scoot down to verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Do what I commanded. Be self-sufficient. Healthy families, fruitful families, seek to impact your, the culture around you in a positive way. 
And at the end of 70 years, I will visit you. That's the plan. Now, where are we in that? We know what it meant 600 years before the time of Jesus. What does it mean 2,000 and some odd years after him? Let's take a step back real quick. We know that we are exiles here, right? We are exiles here. Peter, in one of his epistles, calls us exiles. We know that this is not our permanent home, is it? In fact, we know from the book of Hebrews that this is not our country. As much as we love it, as much as we are to seek its good, this is not our nation. We are aliens here. We are not permanent residents. We are transient through this age. It is not where we belong. These are not our kings. And outside the church, these are not our people. The people of God are a distinct creation. The church is a distinct creation of all tribes, tongues, and nations in the Holy Spirit into one kinship in the family of God. And that is what we live in. We wait for a better country. We wait for a permanent country. We wait for a better king. So as exiles, as temporary residents here, For some period of time, what should we be doing? And I think what we do is we take the four points from Jeremiah's text and we, you know, adjust a few things and we New Testamentize them, all right? So let's walk through this together. The four things that Jeremiah writes to the people in Babylon, how can we live that type of exile Christianity here and now? Let's look at the first one, build self-sufficient lives. You know, it's difficult to talk about uh, self-sufficiency in our economy where everything's interconnected. And if you run out of milk, you go to the store and they're out of milk, you're out of milk for good. Who in here owns dairy cattle? Nobody? Man, in the ancient world, this would be a poor church. Who here owns uh, a butcher processing, or like a meat processing plant? Or who in here is a butcher? Any farmers in here? Maybe one or two. We're out of luck. Wow, this is worse than I thought. But in the ancient world, all those things were connected by social networks in the community. In fact, uh, we use the word economy. The word economy, an uh, interesting word, it comes from two Greek words, uh, oikos and nomos, the law of the household or a system of the household. So an economy has this, this identity rooted in the word of a house and, it's, and what we call household economics in high school before that was done away with. House and home economics. Um, when you ran a household in the ancient world, you ran a mini economy. It was pretty self-sufficient. 
at least not in and of itself, then you had a network of people and relatives around you you could lean on. So if you didn't have a milk cow, someone else had a milk cow. And the way that this works is the people of God were told to be self-sufficient in the land they were going to. It wasn't just about build a nice house so you can watch TV at night. You built a house as a small factory for your family. You built a garden to eat food during lean times. You built a garden so you could survive the winter without getting some type of disease. And we take a step back from that and go, well, how do we do that? Now listen, I'm not telling you to go out and buy a tiller and start making a garden. Uh, Some of y'all would not get very far in the process before there was an injury involved. Um, This isn't about growing vegetables, but this is about living a life that can, can look at society and be a source of giving rather than a source of taking. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, and in chapter 4, Paul writes to these Christians, and these are new Christians. They have not been Christians for long. And he says to them in chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, uh, starting at the end of verse 10, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, he's not saying that every single person in the Thessalonian church has to have everything they need to be completely self-sufficient. He's talking to that whole church and he's telling them, y'all need to have it together so much that if there's a problem amongst y'all and someone has need, that need is met in the community. Why? Because if you go out of that community, you're dead. If you go out of that community, you're going to be forced to commit idolatry to do business. You know, that's how the ancient world worked. You join a guild, you join a business, and you've got to sacrifice to some weird deity somewhere. You have to sacrifice to the emperor. You have to do something against your faith. So the church was supposed to be a self-contained unit that would look over each other's needs, just like in the book of Acts, would take care of people when they were sick, would take care of them when they couldn't work, And would take care of them when they lost their job. The church was the first social program. God made sure his family took care of its members. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 11 through 12. Paul warns them just a little bit later. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. You know what that means, right? They're not gainfully employed. They're not working. They're hanging out, causing trouble. There are some among you that walk in idleness. Not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Times are coming in our country and are already here where if you can't bow to some ungodly slogan or bend the knee to some ungodly banner, your 
employment status might be in jeopardy. Where you say something as simple as two plus two equals four and you're no longer allowed to work. You know it's already here and you know that it's just getting worse year by year. And what does the church do in light of this? Do we just bow down to society and say, well, when we're in church, we'll sing the right songs, but when we're out of there, it doesn't matter. That's not what God calls us to do. We need to build houses, plant gardens, and build self-sufficient lives where we love and take care of each other. As Paul says in Galatians 6.10, do good to all people, but especially to those in the household of God. You've seen it. You've all lived long enough. Government programs build up that are going to fix some social problem, but all they do is they build a bureaucracy and feed it. And trillions of dollars gets poured down a money pit. But families can build empires. Families can build nations. The second part of this command, build strong families. We've already talked about how the household was an economy in the ancient world, but a family was strength in the ancient world. Families and clans were strong. They had their own militaries. They had their own identities, their own way of dressing, their own way of talking. And in God's household, we, being the family of God, are to build strong families. Now, in the original passage we're looking at in Jeremiah, it talks about taking wives. And that's part of it. Marriage is such an integral part of the church. In fact, the church is just the reality that marriage is looking like. Marriage looks like Christ in the church. It's an echo of Christ in the church. But marriage is such a foundational and important, integral part of the church. And we champion that here. We champion marriage. We want the marriages in our church to be strong. We want them to be harmonious. We want them to be sources of life and joy and comfort. And as we look at the way society is going with it, we know that it's going the opposite way, that marriages are fragmenting. Marriages are being devoured by the culture. Now, if the church is a hospital for sinners, it's also a repair bay for your relationships. I'll say that again. A church is a hospital for sinners, and it should be a repair bay for your relationships. We have marriage matters. We've had classes. We have marriage coaches in this church that can reach out and partner with you. We have to overcome the stigma and shame of saying, you know, we need a little bit of help here. There is no shame in that, especially not in the family of God. Our marriages need to be strong. Nobody needs to come to this church and feel like they must be perfect. But I don't want anyone to come to this church and feel like they have to leave living a lie. There is hope and help in the gospel. And as we live in exile here, let's focus on our marriages. Let's focus on the love that exists between husband and wife and how it's supposed to be lived out in the New Testament family code. Pastor Wade just preached out of Ephesians on this recently. 
But this passage, I don't think, just applies to marriage. I think it applies to all of our social connections in this church. Because like I said, the household of God is a family. We are all brothers and sisters. The social connections in the Christian church should build up a society within the church where our marriages are all connected together and able to get support from each other, where our jobs are able to get support from each other, where we can parent together as a community and grandparent together as a community. Because we're building strong families and strong families build empires, the Christian church should be one of the strongest social centers in the country. We go back to the year 2020 when COVID hit and people were disconnected and sitting at home and they polled a lot of people and everybody was less happy in May 2020 than they were in February 2020 except for one group of people. Do you know who that was? Christians. And not just Christians, but those who regularly attended church. Now, why is it that in the middle of social disconnection, the one group that was happier in May 2020 were Christians that attend church? And y'all remember it because y'all took up the slack and y'all checked on everybody else. Bible study leaders called all their Bible study members. All of your small groups called each other. The pastors were calling y'all. Y'all stayed connected. Even though we couldn't meet in large groups, we were checking on each other. And that type of cohesiveness helped Christians weather that storm better than those outside of the church. The church should be strong in our marriages, in our friendships, in our connections, we should build within it a social empire that cannot be broken down even when there's a quarantine in effect. Furthermore, we go about the stabilizing effect of fathers. The stabilizing effect of fathers. You know all the research. Families with fathers do better, better than families without fathers. There is something irreplaceable in a father that can't be duplicated. The church should have, should be a place where there are fathers to the fatherless. I grew up in a broken home. My father left the house when I was seven, almost eight. And I was raised by a single mother the rest of my life until I was an adult. But I was not fatherless. Between men in the church my grandfather, and other people who stepped up, there were people there to tell me when I had gotten out of line. My mom couldn't control me, but there were men around who would step in if I got a little too rowdy for her. The church should be a place where we can be equipped as fathers, men, where grandfathers and fathers can step in to those relationships that have been mauled and torn apart by sin and inject the health of our Heavenly Father into the situation. We need to build self-sufficient lives and we need strong families. But third, we also need to build fruitful families. Fruitful families. Let me talk about this for a minute. Biologically, Children are a blessing. The call to be fruitful and multiply did not end with the New Testament church. And the church should be a place where we celebrate children and celebrate fruitfulness because the world has a culture of death towards children. Y'all know that. 
The world without God has a culture of death towards children. But we know in the midst of that, there are those, God opens the womb, God closes the womb. There are difficulties involved with this. And the church should also be a place where spiritual fruitfulness happens. There are husband and wives that in heaven will have no biological children. But they will have the rich legacy of so many spiritual children. They will look like a massive clan of people who call them mother and father in a spiritual sense. So the church champions biological family and spiritual family. The church nurtures children of people's bloodlines. And the church nurtures spiritual children. Both and Our church has in it and should champion adoption, foster care, any type of program that reaches out into the broken wasteland of American families and pulls people in and teaches them about their heavenly father. We need healthy families, strong families, but we need fruitful families. Families where babies are made and families where Christians are discipled. That is part of a healthy family. Christian church and exile. When you think about the Roman belief of the father, that he had the power of life and death in his tongue, if a child was born in a Roman family, they were just thrown out to the garbage dump if they weren't wanted. The father would walk out, leave the child, and nobody would pick them up because the father had the power in Roman society of life and death. What did Christians do? Christians hid in the garbage dumps and went to the crying children, picked them up, adopted them, and raised them as their own. Will we be that fruitful family of God on earth, rescuing those led out to destruction? Last but not least, we need to impact the surrounding culture. We need to impact the surrounding culture. You know our mission statement, right? Two words. Abide and advance. We're here to abide and advance the gospel. We abide by living in it, by building these strong, fruitful families like we're talking about. And then we advance out by impacting the culture. This advance is summed up in the Great Commission where Christians are commanded that as we go, we are to do what? Disciple the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Disciple the nations. We aren't just here to close ourselves off and hide out. We're not trying to, you know, stock up on food just so we can live past the crash. We're here to impact this nation and disciple it. When Paul commands the Christians in the New Testament church to interact with their Roman, we'll call them overlords, he he does it in a very interesting way. He's he's training Timothy to be a pastor in the book of 1 Timothy. And in chapter 2, he's kind of telling him how church should work. And he says uh, in chapter 2, verse 1, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all those or all who are in high positions. Pray 
for the godless Roman emperor above you, Timothy. Pray for all the kings of all the different client states of the Roman Empire and pray for your corrupt rulers. Pray for them. Impact them through prayer. Don't say, well, God's written them off. Pray for them. I mean, he keeps going on. Why? That we may lead a a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants the church to be such a good group of citizens to pray for those in power above them so they can get out and do gospel work peacefully and quietly without being bugged. There's a story that in China, some Christians were called by the government officials and were kind of scolded for not being good Chinese citizens because they wouldn't follow communism but follow the teachings of Jesus. And they responded back. They said, do any of the members in our church break the law? And the government official said, no. Haven't arrested any of them except for, you know, like this. Do any of them, um, you know, go out and get in trouble or get in fights? They said, no, they don't. They're pretty quiet. Do any of them not work with their hands and take care of themselves and help other people around them. He said, no, they all have a good reputation for doing that. And he said, then I want to tell you something. If you let us follow the Lord and do what he commands, we'll be the best Chinese citizens there are. You won't have any trouble out of us. We'll outlive the people who aren't in the church. We'll do better. We'll take better care of people around us than them. Just let us serve the Lord. Christians should leave a mark on the culture. Now, you know that the culture right now is filled with so much rot that it's very difficult to interact with it in a meaningful fashion. Unless that fashion is martyrdom or social ostracization, we have a very tough time interacting with our culture at this present moment. And I just want to warn you that in the next couple of years, your favorite country singer will probably say something unconscionable. Your favorite movie will be recast and the message will be changed into something that completely goes against your upbringing. Your favorite TV show will have characters introduced that go against the teachings of Jesus. And your favorite sports team will have all kinds of weird celebrations that you may not be able to take your family to the game on that day. And the tendency for Christians is to withdraw, get away, and not interact with culture anymore. And I don't have the exact answer because it's different in every situation, but that is not what God would have us do. I'm not saying you interact with the filth. But I'm also not saying that you completely pull back. Christians can be culture creators themselves. And the church, because of the talent and the people in it, the church should be a repository for all things good and wholesome in our culture. Stories of heroics and stories of what's good and right, stories of sacrifice, should be safeguarded by the church. And as those things are rewritten by our culture... We should protect them. Art, music, 
beauty, objective truth, all of those things should be protected by the church and taught to our children so that they can stand up as the world begins to unwrite them or rewrite them or erase them. The church should impact the culture. And the church should safeguard what's good about that culture from the world. I am not saying the church should go out and make its own virtual reality headset. I'm not saying the church should go out and make its own meta. We may need to ask the question if, as all these people are disengaging from the real world, if there will be an opening for the church to remind people of what's in the real world. I love social media, but maybe it's time to invest more in the social fabric of our lives. Christians need to see the vital points of our culture. We need to protect those, equip others to protect them, and we need to build our own culture. As the world continues to topple down around us, it'll be like in the Middle Ages when the church still had all the light from the Roman Empire, the good parts, kept and saved to rebuild after the decline. Self-sufficient lives, strong families, fruitful families impact the culture. We have that same promise given to us, right? That God will visit us when this is all over. Just like when the 70 years were up for the people of Israel, whenever that portion of time is up that the church is to be here, God will visit us. He will rescue us. But we need to follow the same plan. In generation to generation, we need to pass down the faith, teach the gospel, and continue to disciple the nations. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's word. May the Lord richly bless you.